sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with myself, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is Nick Albin, also known as Chewy. Nick has a ton of experience in the sport. We had a great chat about his online presence and some of the different advice he gives to people of all levels, and also touched on some interesting ideas on balancing the many aspects of life while training and competing at a high level. As usual, if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it with your friends and subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. Before we get going as well, I want to give a special thanks to everyone that's been supporting on the Patreon recently. I'm posting weekly instructional videos on there and we've had some great feedback so far and I'm happy to help everyone improve their jiu-jitsu. I'm also delighted to announce that I just released a new instructional overpowered leg locks on Technically.com. The main focus on the instructional is how to get to and finish from backside leg lock positions. And as well, it also features some of my favorite counters that I use. So I feel like there's some really unique ideas in there that'll help everyone improve their leg lock game, both offense and defense. So you can check that out on Technically.com. I'll also leave a link for it down in the description so anyone interested can check it out there. It also includes my previous instructional release with Technically. So for anyone newer to the material, you get two instructional DVDs for the price of one. And I'm sure you'll notice some big improvements in your leg lock game over the coming months. For now, let's get back to another episode of Inside Position with Chewy. Thanks for coming on the show, Chewy. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Happy to be here, bro. You have a lot of experience competing, coaching, as well. A lot of people would be asking you for advice on different things throughout the years. I was wondering what are some of the most common things that people want a bit of advice on and as well how that changes the more experience they get? Well, I mean... I, I get questions that people would get, you know, normally, like obviously people are struggling, especially if you're a white belt, then you're going to struggle with, you know, escaping or getting smashed or whatever. Um, blue belts typically start to give me questions related to, okay, I can play jiu-jitsu now. What should I focus on? Because there's so much to do. Um, purple belts are kind of in that point where, you know, again, they they want to turn up their ability to be effective. And so they got to sharpen their abilities. They've got to focus on something and specialize a bit. And then like brown and black belts, a lot of times, in person, like I, I can give them like technical corrections. And I mean, some of them like watch my technique videos, but a lot of times it's more questions related to just like stuff. And I think that's one of the things that I've gotten a lot of questions about is like personal stuff, like stuff that like you would talk to someone in person that like is like a friend or like a big brother or something like that, that you might ask a question about like a lot of the unwritten rules and uh, things like that. And even like the the relationship dynamics that are at gyms, I get a lot of questions from all belt levels for that. Um, it's funny, I'm getting ready to start a new like series on my channel because <laughs> like my game's pretty simple. I'm not like I'm not a super flashy person. It's effective. The game is perfectly effective for what I do. But I'm I was always like a fighting guy first. And then it was like jujitsu was like became I ended up getting into jujitsu for fighting, found that I loved jujitsu more and just kept doing that. But I still always kind of retained that fighting aspect. And so I don't do a lot of crazy flashy stuff. And um, I get sometimes I'll get comments from people both in person and in like on my my channel like they're like bro show us the stuff that you really use because you keep showing this basic stuff and I'm like that's what I do bro so I'm gonna be starting a channel <laughs> on that like show here's that basic stuff that you guys are like that I yeah. use that you guys think doesn't work or whatever and show some of the details to it but you know I get everything from technique questions and like specific training issues to um, I think one of the things that apparently I've become known for is like the guy that you kind of ask about like hey man like this thing happened between so and so and like what's your take on this or I just got smashed at this competition I'm feeling a little bit you know down in the dumps about it and I get a lot of those questions too so it, it really runs the gamut is it weird getting some of the more personal ones 
I don't answer any of these questions from like the standpoint of like, this is the answer. I know in the gym, there's like a, we have um, a number of older guys in our gym that train with us that are like, you know, in their forties and stuff like that and have a lot more life experience than I do in certain areas. And so like, if I have a question about something, I ask them now, I don't take that person's advice and say, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Sometimes it is. But it helps give me another perspective from another vantage point that says, ah, that's interesting. Let me think about that and then combine it with my own thoughts and ideas and, and subjective experience to sort of create a pathway for myself to follow. And so that's really what it is. It's basically like, look, here's a different perspective on the problem that you're having. Maybe this is useful to you or maybe if nothing else, it gets you to think in a different light. And so I I, I never really felt weird with it because I was never trying to come from a place of like, I am the ultimate authority. I'm just like, I'm just like trying to be a buddy who maybe has a little bit more experience in this realm of jujitsu than you do, because in the end, we're all on the same path, right? We're on the same road. I'm just maybe a little bit further ahead of you. So maybe I can give you some ideas that might be useful to you. When you started off training, you must have what, like 20 years of jujitsu now. There wasn't as much jujitsu around back then. What kind of advice were you able to get from people when you started off and how was the first few years of your training? I wrestled in high school and then started jiu-jitsu in 2003. There was no YouTube. There was no streaming video. Every now and then you could find some stuff on like some internet forums, like in the back area, like in the back pages, you could find like some videos of like matches and stuff, but it was very rare. Most of the time you had to buy the v the VHS tapes or the DVDs and um, to watch matches or to, you know, study instructionals. I mean, I remember buying the, the 2003 ADCC. I had both the trials, the North American trials and VHS, and I had the, the actual championships. I could watch them. You know, you would watch stuff and do your best to sort of pick it apart. And obviously we all had coaches, but I think the interesting part was if you wanted to learn something from someone, you had to go actually train with them. It was a very interesting because, you know, which I feel I still think is the best way to learn. It just is what it is. You know, you can learn a lot of stuff through instructional videos and stuff, which I still do to this day. But there's something different about like having someone put you in the position that they're trying to explain and then you feel it. You're like, oh, that's what you're doing, you know, which is really useful. But nonetheless, the um, there wasn't a lot of information out there. So you had to go train with people if you wanted to learn something from them. And so a lot of it, you just uh, you just sort of figured it out on your own. And it was a lot slower of a progress, right? I, I feel like back then people got better at a slower pace because one, the jujitsu just wasn't as refined and the information was not as abundant uh, as it is today where you can pretty much figure out just about anything really quickly on Google. And that's pretty much for anything. I mean, it, you know, the internet is this, you know, on your phone right now, you have the accumulation of like thousands of years of human, like knowledge and science and math and everything else all at your fingertips, whatever subject you want to learn, it's right there. All you got to do is put in a little work and, and you can, you can learn it. And so it's fantastic. But yeah, it, we didn't really have a lot of resources back then. So we had to just kind of figure it out on our own or learn from our coaches or whatever. Do you feel sometimes that people have almost too much jiu-jitsu now? Because I know myself, I actually learn more when I'm a bit more invested in it, like when I have to pay a lot of money for it or travel or, you know, like if I have all these instructional videos that I can just look up anytime, I end up almost not learning them the same way as I would if I kind of had more investment into it. Yeah, I think if you're invested into something, you're naturally going to put forth more effort into it, you know, so if you pay for something you paid for it, like you put, you got some skin in the game and you're probably going to put a little bit more effort towards it, whether if it's a free video or not. Now that's not to say that free videos don't work because I've learned plenty from them. And I know I have, you know, testimonials from people that do. I think the big thing is, is 
putting yourself on like a diet, so to speak. So a lot of times the issue comes with information is that too much of it can be overwhelming. And for information with jujitsu to be effective, you have to digest that and you have to mentally and physically in your body, you've got to break that stuff down to make it usable because your body has to develop the physical intuition for that technique. Um, you have to develop the mental representations for that technique to be effective uh, long-term and that takes time. And so, you know, the thing that I tell people is whether it's like an instructional you paid for, whether it's a free one, the, the best thing that I could give you is once you find something, you're like, ooh, I like this. And we've all felt that we've all felt that before we come across a technique that like we just kind of like it or we want to be good at it or even it just feels good. Stop everything you're doing. Stop watching anything else. Just stick with that for a while. Um, just focus on that one thing and like execute that just 100 percent because just like anything else, the a one well-executed idea is worth a thousand just ones that sat on the shelf, you know? Um, you know, for instance, when I was teaching myself how to do business, so to speak, because I, I jumped into teaching a gym full-time and I was like, yeah, this is going to be great. And, you know, you quickly realize that there's a lot more to running a gym than just simply showing up and teaching classes. Well, when I'm going through that process, I remember like, there's so much, there's so much coming in. At one point, I was overwhelmed with information, and so I just stopped. And every time I would come to something I hadn't done or I needed to do, I would stop you know, reading my books, stop watching my courses that I had bought, and I would just do that thing until it was done, and then I would move on to the next thing. Who was the first well-known black belt or someone that had a big influence on your career that you met? Because I'd say there wasn't too many of them floating around Kentucky back 20 years ago. You know, my first coach was a guy named Mike and Mike, you know, he, um, he had a big influence on my game, especially early on. And then, um, I had my coaches Colin and Kyle, it, by the way, Mike was a purple belt when I first started, I changed to a different gym. And when I changed to that gym, I had two black belt coaches as far as like a black belt that wasn't like my direct coach, someone that probably had a really big impact on my game early on. Well, it's not even really early on. There's a couple, one of them was Andre Gaval. Um, that was in 2010. He had a drilling book. I've got that sucker and it's like all tore up and earmarked and stuff. And um, I put that book to, I used every single thing that I could out of that book. And because I watched, because I was watching his, his matches around 2008 and he was coming onto the scene and this one, he was a little bit smaller. Um, he wasn't quite as like muscular as he is now, but he was a little bit smaller, but he was just, he was winning everything. And this is when he first kind of got, he was really started to show at the black belt level. And I really liked his style because it was like simple, but it was very effective and he was just beating everybody. And I liked that style. And he was still moving a lot. And I liked that idea of moving. So I was like a big guy at the time. I was about 225. I'm a bit smaller now. I was like, I want to start moving more. And so I started doing those drills and it helped out a bunch. When I first started jujitsu, there was a, a jujitsu instructional by a guy named uh, Craig Kukuk, who was a black, I think he was a black belt under Hinzo Gracie. And I mean, nobody, nobody probably has heard of the guy, you know, whatever. But I remember that disc set was really good. There was a lot of good techniques in there. And so I remember when I was using it, I was a wrestler who just got, this is back when I was a white belt watching this thing. I was a jujitsu, uh, I was a white belt in jujitsu and, but I wrestled in high school. So I always got to side control when I was, when I was rolling. And so I basically put in the side control disc and I just went and found a couple moves. And I was like, cool, you know, like, because it makes sense, right? Like I'm a, I'm a white belt who, you know, gets to side control. Why am I going to look at other positions? This is where I get to let's build this up. And uh, I ended up taking a bunch of techniques off that disc and try testing them out with my buddy at my, my home. And I remember going to my gym and my coach would look at me and it was a technique he hadn't shown me. He'd be like, where did you get that technique? You've been watching those DVDs, haven't you? You know? And, uh, so there was a few guys from afar that I learned from, 
And then there were other guys like uh, I learned a lot from Pablo Popovich. He was a big influence because we were an affiliate under him at the time. Um, and I learned I really got a, a, a basically the the sense of butterfly guard and learning learning guards that weren't boring to me. Like full guard is very boring to me because you just lock up, which, again, it's not boring for everyone. But for me as a wrestler coming into it, I didn't want anything to do with it learning butterfly guard and half guard where you can wrestle up and you can do a little bit more. It made more sense to me. So um, yeah, that's, that's just a few, I could go on, but there's, that's a few influences back then. It's funny. Even the, the bad little DVDs actually helped me a lot back in the day. There wasn't a, an easy place, like a common place where everybody could come together and share information really quickly back then. So if someone was a fake, it would be hard to find out about it unless maybe you were a really avid person on the forums. Well, there was even the guy back in the day who used to do the, on YouTube, who got, I guess he wasn't like an actual jiu-jitsu black belt. He was a, like, he eventually got his jiu-jitsu black belt. It was like, like Submissions 101. Oh, that was the one Submissions 101. I used to watch every one of those. Yeah, he, that dude had like a massive following. That was brilliant for me because what it was, was it would just give me an idea for training. So before every training session, I would watch a YouTube video. Yeah. And then I would try and do that submission in the training. And I was a complete white belt. But like when you're a kid and you're used to playing other sports, you kind of pick it up quickly. So one training, mm-hmm. I'd be trying to do anaconda chokes. Next training, I'd be trying to do guillotines, brunette chokes, whatever. It's funny. Yeah, I actually learned a lot from you know, submissions 101. Yeah, but that dude, I think he, I think he, he would always wear a black belt, but I think he was like a maybe a Japanese black belt or Japanese jiu-jitsu black belt. And then later on, he got his, I think he got his actual jiu-jitsu black belt. Did you have many injuries back in the day? Because I know like hearing stories from in Ireland back when there was less we say guidance with the training and it was just people going in going ham with each other and there was a lot of injuries I've been really lucky that I haven't had a ton of major major injuries I think a big portion of this one is just from like like I've always I've always lifted weights and I think that 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 helped big time because it helps support the joints and helps prevent injury and I've also you know even even when I'm at my most stubborn I've always been pretty good about just not training through injuries. I think the overdoing it's a big one. Be- this is just from years of talking to people. One of the most common things that I've heard from friends and even my own injuries is that, oh man, like I was on my second training session that day, been training for like one week straight with no rest or whatever. And then I, it, and I, it, last round and I tore this, right? Or whatever. Like, hell, I even, one of my buddies, many, like last year, he tore a lat. Like I've never heard, of, I've never heard of someone tearing their lat. And he said that, and this doctor that he went to said that the only lat tears that he's ever seen were from jujitsu guys. And, and I was talking to him, I was like, man, what do you, what do you think happened? And he said, literally it was like, it was his third training session that day. And he would just been pushing himself big time for a tournament. And um, I, I think that in some ways the jujitsu training is still kind of, it's still kind of in, in caveman land, right? Like, you know, we, we don't, we don't beat ourselves up as much as we used to. Like we're back when we, first, when I first started, it was just like, you know, your first day you're going hard, you're training hard. You know, we do it a little bit more intelligently, but when it comes to like training for competitions, I think guys are, people can be really dumb about it where it's, they end up trying to shed tons of weight they don't get on a proper diet they're just trying to like cut a bunch of weight and lose the weight for the tournament and then while they're while the nutrients in in sort of is going into their body is dropping they're then trying to increase their volume right and it, that's that's a that's a bad relationship to have right you, you want to make sure that like if your tournament's coming up you put get yourself on a good diet and you should train hard, but then it should be as you're dropping the nutrients to, you know, let your body cut the weight, your hard training is going to have to come down. Otherwise you're going to risk injury. It's just the way it is. 
And how did you get into coaching then? Were you training long before it or how did the opportunity come up? I got into coaching my first time coaching like many people I was um I was a blue and purple belt and occasionally I'd have to help out with my coach, help out my coach, you know, hey man, I help these guys out or whatever. And you know, back when I was a blue belt, I was like blue belt was kind of a big deal in the area. I started teaching occasionally then and then I started teaching when I was a purple belt on a regular basis at my old gym. I was listening to an old um it was an old podcast called Fightworks Podcast. And I want to say it was Lovato who said that, you know, teaching really makes your jujitsu better. Maybe I, I could be m- not remembering that correctly, but I remember him saying that or someone saying that it, j- teaching jujitsu makes your jujitsu better. So I was like, okay. So I asked my coach, I said, hey, man, can I start teaching a class once a week? I don't, I don't care about getting paid. I just want to do it because I want to make my jujitsu better. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to teach some of the stuff that I have, but mainly I wanted to like improve my jujitsu by teaching. And also it's, it's, it's a lot different. It's a lot different taking a move that you know and then breaking it down and understanding why it works and then basically giving it to people in a simple enough form so that they can understand it. And so I started then as a purple belt in a, in a regular basis. And then after when I was a brown belt, my coaches essentially left the gym. One of them moved to Brazil and the other moved to Mexico with his wife. And I became the full-time coach as a, as a brown belt, not by choice, mind you. It was just like, I was already coaching all the time because I liked it. I was always in the gym. I was training like six, seven days a week. And if I wasn't training hard, I was just there. You know, I just liked being in the gym. And so it was just, I was the one to, to, to pass the torch down to. And um, I started teaching back in, uh, I became the full-time coach back around late 2009. And that was, about, that was only after about six and a half years or so. And how has your coaching style changed since you got the reins in 2009? Oh, God, man. It's, I, it, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. It's probably trained, chained in so many, changed in so many ways that I cannot even fathom the difference between them. Um, one is that we don't – I don't train hard all the time like I used to. Like I used to come in. We just beat the crap out of each other because I'm like, that's how you get good, right? Um, one thing that we place a, a big importance on now, we do a lot more deliberate training and like situational sparring because, you know, what happens most of the time is if you just do a full role, people just go back to doing whatever it is that they normally do. And so I want to make sure that they actually use the position. So that was a big one. And obviously, I know you know this, but for people listening, maybe they're they're newer you get really good at these positions. And then your job, when you roll with someone, you're not thinking how to hit moves, this, that, whatever. You're like, I just have to get them to this position because once I get them to this position, this is my world. And I'm just going to eat them apart because I, I just know the position better than they're going to, you know? And so this is why you look at grapplers and this is not just jujitsu. This is other grappling sports. You look at any grappling sport and typically you'll find that the highest level people have a position, a technique, or something associated with them. They become known for this, right? Like in judo, so-and-so is, they become synonymous with the uchimata. Hodger Gracie becomes synonymous with the cross-collar choke. And it's not by accident. I actually had that experience the first year I was competing in the gi as a black belt because I was doing a lot of saddle and heel hooks and stuff. So how am I going to translate all this heel hook stuff over? So I started doing knee bars and then I got good at it. So it gave me a lot of confidence because going into the gi competitions, all I had to think was, okay, can I put this person in X guard? Yes. Like I probably can. Does that mean I can win? Yes. You know, and that was my main goal. And then having it be so simple, it actually helped me have like really good success with it. Right. Because it simplifies the whole process instead of getting onto the mat and thinking, all right, what do I got to do? With regards to the YouTube channel and everything, how did you get into that? Did it feel weird just kind of putting yourself out there when you first started? Oh, yeah, it feels weird, of course. Right. Um, unless <laughs> unless you're I mean, unless you're a complete narcissist and you're delusional, um, you're putting yourself out. You're putting yourself out in front of someone and you're opening yourself up for ridicule uh, and to be vulnerable, which is 
it just is what it is. And anytime humans do that, we always feel a little weird at first. But it started off as a way one because I was doing drilling videos for my students because what would happen is my students would come in, my young students would come in and they would say, hey, let's do a drilling session. Now, I would be in the gym kind of hanging out, doing whatever before class, and I would watch their, quote, drilling sessions, right? And they would just kind of, you know, screw off, and then eventually they would start rolling. And it's like, that's not a drilling session. Like, and you you, you, you would get more from the drilling session because we're going to roll for an hour or so at, in our class. Like, don't roll more. Like, do some drilling. And so I started to put these basic drills up, just super simple drills that were based upon stuff that we were doing for our classes at the time. And then I started posting those. Those got popular. And then I was also posting some techniques and stuff like that that would come up from my my blog and everything else because I had a blog at the time. And then I randomly started getting questions from people. Like they would like ask me questions about leaving a gym or they would ask questions about this, that, whatever. And then I started answering those. And I remember kind of like, all right, like everybody in YouTube does this already, but now I'm doing it and it feels a little weird, but I mean, everybody already does it anyway. So whatever, you know? And so I just jumped into it again, just try to be as helpful as possible to people. It must be nice as well, though, to have a positive impact on a lot of people, even people that you don't necessarily know in your personal life. Absolutely. Well, I mean, like, you know, as a coach, I don't, I don't know that everybody's like this, but I find a deep sense of meaning what I'm doing because of the fact that I'm helping people, right? Because I'm, I'm getting, I get, I get to wake up every day and I get to just try to figure out new ways to help my students um, with whatever's going on with them. And then also I get this cool chance to work with people in a way that would have helped me when I was younger um, and help them with all kinds of random stuff, jujitsu related, sometimes not. And that's a cool thing. And, um, you know, that helps bring meaning to my life. And I think that, you know, if you can find a way to help other people in your communities, whatever they might be, I think that makes life a lot more rich. I didn't realize how much I love coaching, actually, until I had a couple of years recently where I wasn't coaching. It got a bit boring without the coaching where it was just training, get better, training, get better, training, get better. And I mean, if that's all you're doing as well, and then you don't have a result in the competition, you're like, well, fuck me. What did I do all that for? You know, whereas when you're coaching, you're having those little wins every day when you're helping your friends get better and they're helping you get better as well. Yeah, it definitely gives you another facet to focus on in jiu-jitsu. And I think you mentioned something that's really important there is like rolling with people that have of lesser skill level. I, I think that's super important because, you know, that's a lot of times, you know, how you start to work te new techniques into the game because, you know, you learn a technique and then before it's ready to be used at like, let's say if you're a black belt, before it's ready to black belt level, well, now we have to practice it against the blue belts and the purple belts and the brown belts. And, you know, you, you got to you got to work it up a little bit. And a lot of times with the, um, the the lower belts who don't have as good of a shot of like smashing you, it allows the role to be a lot more relaxed and you can be a lot more creative like you were talking about. And then, you know, obviously when you go against the other black belts who are like gunning for you, then you got to sharpen it up a little bit. My first couple rounds will probably be against like a blue and a purple belt. And then I try to pick out some of the browns and black belts that are going to be really tough. And then I'll typically go back and forth where I'll say, okay, I just rolled with the black belt. I'm a little zapped. Let me roll with the blue belt this round. All right, next round, I'm going to roll with another black belt. And it was interesting to watch my heart rate go up and then kind of level off a little bit, go back up and level down a little bit. And uh, I think that those those roles with you know opponents that aren't necessarily at the same skill level is very valuable for a lot of different reasons. And sometimes as well, when I roll with someone who's higher level, like brown, black belt, I convince myself in my head that they're a blue belt. 
I feel like if I rolled with a lot of the brown and black belts that I roll with, if they were wearing a blue belt and I'd never met them before, I would actually smash them twice as much as I do, if that makes sense. So I try and brainwash myself into using more skill than trying to squeeze them because like my skill is pretty good and my squeeze probably needs a bit of work, you know. <laughs> I had a white belt years ago. He was uh, pretty darn tough. He came in one day and we were doing nogi and there was a guy visiting the gym who was a brown belt and he did pretty well against the brown belt. Like he was scrappy like and he did he did way better. Now, at the end of the class, I sort of told him he was a brown belt and his eyes got kind of big. Now, the reason why that that was significant was because a lot of times he and I had talked about the fact that if someone came in and they were a higher level and like basically because we would get visitors, if it was a person that was higher level and they saw the, you know, the higher belt on, he even told me that he would get spooked by it, you know, that he would get <laughs> spooked by whatever and that he would just like almost mentally just accept that he's going to get beat up or get smashed or whatever. Even if there was a clear like you could watch the way that that person rolled with everyone else and realized that he was perfectly capable of doing well, he just didn't. And then with that, he was, you know, there was no gi, there was no belt. And so he was surprised by himself by going tit for tat with a brown belt and really giving him a good run for his money. Yeah. <laughs> that, I had a story like that actually before uh, training over in Miami. And I used mm. to wear this blue uh, Keiko Hasa rash guard all the time. And it was oh, yeah. super faded because I had just got my brown belt actually at this time. And I was 21, but I looked so young. I honestly looked like 16. I was rolling with this guy, a big, strong, juiced up uh, brown belt. I had met him a few days ago, but I, he obviously had forgotten. I was kind of introduced to him as this brown belt, but I didn't know that he'd forgotten. So anyway, we have mm -hmm. this role. He starts off going kind of light and I butterfly sweep him and he gets pissed off, freaks out, explodes. And I think I guillotined him or something. Uh -huh. And I kind I was like, why is this guy... You know, we're just training like and he was really like looking upset. And then he went hard as fuck. He said to me then, how long have you been a blue belt? And I thought he was joking because I had actually met him before. So I was like, oh, I'm just the biggest sandbagger ever, you know, because I thought he knew, we, knew I was a brown belt. And we rolled anyway. He went super hard and I butterfly swept him again. And he, he I've never seen someone so distraught. The round ends and he was like, look, I, I, I don't want to be annoying you or anything. But like, seriously, how long have you been a blue belt? And I was like, oh, no, I, I'm a brown belt. I got my brown belt a couple of weeks ago. And I've never seen anyone as relieved to this day. In my whole life. <laughs> well, and obviously it would, it would probably make, if he was a big jacked up dude, then it would, it would be only worse that you were a blue belt and you're a bit small, right? Like you're, you're a smaller dude. All this mountain of muscle for it is worth nothing now. It's interesting to see how much the belt affects people, you know, because again, the belt's one thing and it has lots of different meanings and whatever else. But, you know, any of us that are competitors, we understand like it, it, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter all that much. I mean, hell, you look at the ADCC trials, you know, there were like lots of purple belts and blue. I mean, the, the J-Rod, who's a blue belt at the time, he got his purple belt this weekend. He freaking won the damn thing, you know, and uh, submitted several black belts on his way to get there. When you're competing, actually, how do you balance the competing, coaching, and then obviously all the, we say, business and personal relationships and everything? Yeah. So the idea of balance, I, I, I struggle with that because I was always trying to be balanced. And I think the idea of balance is it's arbitrary. It's not real. Like we try to, we try to arbitrarily set. Yeah, we try to arbitrarily set an idea of balance to things as if there's some somehow supposed to be this harmonious balance in our lives when the reality is depending on what we're doing. 
we have to unbalance ourselves, right? So for instance, if a competition's coming up, a lot of the the business stuff that I do basically goes down to the bare minimum that I have to do, right? Which isn't that much be, because I've got enough systems in place that I, for a time, not forever, but for a time, I can kind of ease up off that a little bit. And then I have to put more to my training um, and less to everything else. And that just for a number of weeks, and I have to become unbalanced towards that. When a big business project, this is one of the reasons why I typically don't do competitions a bunch in the beginning of the year, because I'm doing a lot of different business stuff so that I can get it lined out and, and in place so that the second half of the year, I can compete more and have more fun because now I've done what I've needed to do. And then with like relationships and stuff, it's the same thing. Like when my fiance and I, we, we got our house and our little farm here in Kentucky, we were like, okay, well, there's going to be a time where I've got to unbalance myself. And I'm going to go there, right? I was, what wasn't my diet, diet slacked off, my training slacked because I was doing this thing. And so I think that um, balance would say that it's contributing. If you say you have balance, it means that it's contributing to something, but balance has to be in alignment with your goals. And so I think that really you're never going to be balanced. You just think about, well, what, what is it that I want to accomplish right now and let myself move towards that. And then once I have something else, let it move towards that. And just constantly, basically, you're just kind of undulating between those, those different things, uh, depending on the time, you know? That's actually a more realistic and nice way of thinking about it. Because I guess if you're always trying to balance it out, you'll never put as much energy maybe in one area that you need at that given moment. Well, right. Because if you're competing, you got to be, you got to go compete. You got to train hard. You got to put in your work. Um, and then, you know, if for some reason, if, you know, if something's going on in your relationship with your family or your wife, whatever, you've got to go all in on that. You can't, you know, like when my, my mother, she got sick. This is back when I was in like 2011. She got sick with cancer and she ended up passing away. Like when that was whole, all that stuff was going on everything else was very minimal i was focused on that because that's what i needed to focus on if i told my dying mother that like, hey sorry mom um i've got to be more balanced i only have two hours to spend with you you know like it'd be ridiculous so i think that you know a lot of times we try to find this balance and it creates a lot of anxiety because we feel like that we're not supposed like as we've been told um th through conditioning that oh we're not supposed to work so hard all the time or we're not supposed to do this all the time what are what are your goals right now? What are you trying to accomplish in your life and go towards that? The only thing that I could say that if if you have trouble maybe keeping certain things in your life throughout the whole process is to make sure they're scheduled. So like for instance, and it sounds ridiculous, but my fiance and I have we have time together each week that's basically essentially scheduled. We don't necessarily have it scheduled, but it basically we know that on Sundays and Fridays and Saturdays, like that's our time. Like Friday night, we're going to go have dinner or something. Saturday, we're going to be hanging out with each other. Sunday, we're going to be hanging out with each other. And then during the week, I'm grinding and doing all the stuff. And we see each other in the morning and the night and a little bit through the day. But, you know, it, it just it is what it is. With the business stuff and all the social media and the podcasts and YouTube and everything, do you enjoy it a lot? Like, how does it compare to training jiu-jitsu? And I was wondering as well, do you have any ideas or advice for someone someone who wants to be, let's say, a full-time jiu-jitsu competitor, but just in case you're not the number, number one ranked in the world, how you could make a living out of it? Well, the business stuff does not compare to jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu is fun. Like, I mean, jiu-jitsu is so much fun. I enjoy the business stuff. I do. I think it's fun. Um, it's a new thing. But like at the end of the day, training and rolling and teaching, that's like the dessert. Like it's the dessert for my day. It's the, it's the most fun stuff. Everything else takes a lot more work and have to be a lot more disciplined towards. As far as marketing yourself in order to make some sort of living through jiu-jitsu, there are tons of different ways to do it. Now, the thing that you have to think about is if someone is going to pay you for something, right? Because obviously, if you're trying to be a full-time jiu-jitsu person, 
then at some point, someone's going to have to give you money for something, whether that be for your teaching, for your techniques, whatever it is, right? Um, if you get sponsored because you're a competitor, well, then they're giving you money because they think you're a good competitor and you can rep their brand. If someone's paying you for lessons, then they think, well, you're a pretty good coach and I can learn from you. One thing to keep in mind is, is that I think you should start with first making sure you fill your, your like sort of cup of experience up as much as possible. I understand the drive to want to do something now, right? I get it. Like when you look at it, it looks like so much fun. God, I want to do that now. The problem is, is that if you do it too, if you do it too early, I feel like doing jujitsu full time, like as a coach or something too early, you're not really in it for them. You're in it for yourself. And the reality is that pe when, when you're teaching people, they don't care about you. They care about themselves. And if you take care of them, they'll care about you, but only afterwards. And so people are coming in with dreams, goals, aspirations. They're trying to do something themselves. And you would like to fill yourself up with as many experiences as possible. So when, when they come in, you can give them something that could be useful to them. And so I think that one, you should delay it as long as you can. And then once you're ready, then you go out and you say, okay, I'm going to try to make something. Now, as a competitor, you don't have to be the biggest, baddest competitor to make a living doing this stuff. I, I'm not. I'm not one of the biggest, baddest competitors, right? But I would probably, I don't know, but I would probably suspect that I make a better living than most uh, in the sport that we do because I know how to run a business and stuff. But there's other ways to do it. And also a lot of times now with young people, the only way that they've, the only way that a lot of people decide to try to like market themselves is to talk trash, right? They all like want to talk trash and they want to act very arrogant. And that's one way to do it. That's one persona to put out. But there are a myriad of different personas that you could potentially use. And by persona, all I really mean is an exaggerated version of yourself because all of us wear a different we wear a different mask for different situations, right? The way that you are with me in this podcast is probably very different from the way you might be with your family or your uh, spouse or whomever, right? We wear a different masks. And so if you're going to present yourself in onto into the world, you'll have to do it with a character. I mean, if you look at the the highest earners of any particular sport or industry, they're not just in the business of being in the business that they're in. They're very competent in what they do, but then they're also in the business of being themselves, right? I mean, that's number one, because it, that's why like you can think of like Kardashians or something, right? Like, I mean, they make a million dollars doing a tweet and they're in the business of being Kim Kardashian. Um, you know, you can see Donald Trump. Donald Trump's in the business of being Donald Trump. Um, there was even back in the day, there was, uh, uh, I remember I was, I was talking about this in a video recently. There was a, a football player named Deion Sanders. And Deion Sanders was funny because he had a, he had this, this whole persona of primetime. And he even talks about primetime in like as a separate person. And he used it for marketing, right? Like, but the guy doesn't, doesn't cuss. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. He's a family guy. So he would put this bigger than life persona. And then in real life, he was very chill, but on the field, he was this guy. So I think there's a persona element to it to market yourself. You have to make yourself into a, a character that people can be a, a attracted to. And it really has to be nothing more than being yourself, but just turned up a little bit from there. I mean, think about the, the one thing I would say is think about looking in other industries and other niches and other things and look at what people are doing there and then bring that back to jujitsu because a lot of times jujitsu people are stuck in jujitsu, right? But then you can look at other industries and see what they're doing and say, okay, that's a really good idea. Let me bring that over here. Um, there is a an essay. I want to say, I think it was by Emerson. And it was about wealth. And basically, the essay boiled down to at one point of the, the one chunk of it was talking about, take that which is abundant in one place and bring it to that which it is not, right? So 
I can have blueberries at any time of the year because they ship them here. And that's very valuable to me because I like blueberries, right? So the person can make money doing that where like you can just ship something. And so you can think about shipping an idea or something from another niche into jujitsu and doing your own version of it and then making it into something unique that, that you do. Do you have any goals or anything coming up soon? I'm going to compete sometime soon. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm an old man. So I do like the old man master. I do like the master one divisions most of the time. I honestly, I, I would do adults if they were six shorter. Like I don't like long matches, like six minutes to me is plenty of time. Um, I feel like everybody can just go after each other for six minutes. 10 minutes usually ends up being like half of it is like feeling each other out. Second half, they actually roll because I'm just bigger too. I don't have that, you know, so six minutes is long enough for me. Um, there's a few little business things and then getting some guys to compete. It's pretty much business is, is normal. Just trying to do it better than, you know, I was doing it the, the, the year previously, but, um, you know, got some little goals, but nothing that would be like, like some massive goal that would be interesting to anyone else other than me. Just like my own little goals that I have, uh, to do each year. Well, thanks a million for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, bro. Thank you for having me on. Big thanks to Chewy for jumping on the podcast. I loved hearing some of the stories from early in his career coming up training in Kentucky and the different challenges and experiences that he had around that time. He also had some great advice on training smart and also monetizing some of your successes in the sport that I know will help some of the younger practitioners who have high ambitions to live through the sport. Before we go, I just wanted to give another quick mention to my new instructional overpowered leg locks on technically.com. I'll leave a link for it down in the description for anyone interested. I'm confident that it'll help improve everyone's leg lock game, both attack and defense. And I'm delighted that I get to share some of the knowledge and experience that I've gained from competing at a high level. Also, if anyone has any feedback, please let me know. I'll be happy to help. As usual, if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to share it with your friends and also subscribe to avoid missing any future episodes. The next few weeks is going to be big for the podcast. We're going to have some of the biggest guests we've seen on so far, including some former UFC champions, UFC fighters, and some of the biggest up-and-comers in the sport as well. So stay tuned. But until the next one, Slánagos Bánacht.